Hi, Sam. Hi, Sonia. How are you doing? Pretty good. What is our current Baba Yaga break time? Well, the Baba Yaga break time is something that I I found on Twitter like a month ago, and I sent to you this blog post by a uh, scholar named Caitlin Green, who's a medievalist at Cambridge. And she has this fantastic story that she came across. And so what I would like to do is because I'm not a medievalist, is I would like to kind of outline this story such as she presents it and then wonder if you have any insights or clarifications or things that you want to say about it. Sounds good. Cool. Let's go into this. So you know that in 1066, Willie, the the Norman guy, he invades England. He conquers it famously. And he brings a bunch of French-speaking nobles into England, and they set up their own sort of new system. Yeah. And there's a couple rebellions after that where these older English-speaking lords, they rise up in rebellion. And it looks like, according to a series of sources, including a Norse saga, a monastic chronicle from the 13th century or something, and a couple other uh, English historical like notes, like a couple English historians from the time period note this, but the, the saga and this, this continental yeah. chronicle are the better sources. But it looks like that uh, a group of these older Anglo-Saxon nobles leave William's new Norman Britain sometime in the 1070s. And where do they go? Well, obviously, if you are a Germanic person from Northern Europe and you need a place to go, you go to Greece. Yeah. And uh, Greece in this time period is the Byzantine Empire, which is this kind of rump Roman Empire state based at Constantinople. And the emperor there has very famously a Germanic bodyguard called the Varangian Guards. Yeah. According to this saga and to this chronicle, which have a very similar story, somewhere between 235 and 350 ships leave England, sail down through the Strait of Gibraltar, stop briefly somewhere in the Mediterranean, either Sardinia or Sicily, and then arrive in Constantinople, where they fight a great battle for the emperor. And we know from medieval Greek sources that there are English-speaking people in the Varangian Guard through like the 13th and 14th century. Right. What's even cooler about this story is something that only the uh, Norse saga mentions, which is that some part of this English population asks at some point later for their own land. Right. And the Byzantine emperor says, well, I can't give you any of the land that belongs to my people, but there's this territory six days journey from here in the northwest coast of the Black Sea that used to be part of my emperor and is now ruled by heathens. And if you go and conquer that for me, you can have that land. And we think, at least that's what uh, Green is conjecturing, and and the scholars from the 1970s that she's quoting conjecture, that's probably in Crimea. And do we have any evidence for later on there being English-speaking people in Crimea? Well, it turns out kind of uh, we do, at least from a, a weird sideways angle. This saga says that These English people call their new country New England, Nova Anglia, and that they found towns there that are named after old towns in England. So specifically after York and London, which are the two biggest English cities at the time. Right. Do we know of any places called York or London in Crimea? Well, there's a medieval map from the 15th century, and I don't have the date exactly in front of me here now, that has a river 
called something that looks like London and another town on the coast that looks like Sussex. Susaki or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like at least for a little while, there was a New England in Crimea in like the 12th, 13th, maybe 14th century. That's news to me. (laughs) For sure. When you sent me this article, I was like, what? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's news to me too, right? Because if you look, I I don't know, you're a Crusaders Kings player. Yes, of course. This isn't in like pop history. (laughs) No. Yeah, it's not something we talk about at all. No, it's definitely not. And I think that, I think it's it's just coming from the broader idea, right, of like in the Middle Ages, everyone just sat where they were and everyone stayed in place and, you know, no one ever traveled further than their village, which is obviously incorrect. Like, yes, was there far less movement than we see in the 21st century? Of course, but like people were moving around all the time just at a somewhat slower pace. Yeah, yeah. It just took longer, right? Six days journey to get from modern day Istanbul yeah. to modern day Crimea. Like that's not true anymore. Yeah. But it, like I, I absolutely agree. Like we I mean even in the ancient world, people think that people were settled, right? You couldn't move. Why would you move? Yeah. No, people moved around all the time. And I think it is also partly that I mean, this is on one hand kind of surprising to me because I hadn't heard of this before. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, this does actually track given that the Kievan Rus state is doing Mm -hmm. quite well for itself. And mainly the way that they're doing well for themselves is trading along the Dnipro Mm -hmm. River. You're able to have a trade route from the Baltics down to uh, the Black Sea, right? And then you have... And from the Black Sea, you correct, to the Middle East and to the Mediterranean and then to the like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This river has been called like the road from the Varangians to the Greeks. Right, exactly, exactly. So there is this idea, right, of like you can go from very, very far northern Europe into Greece and then into Central Asia through these trade routes. So it, you know, again, that's the other thing is that we're imagining the Middle Ages as being very everywhere is, is just like one group of people like one ethnic or like cultural group and it's like no you had people in this in this like region from all over the place right because of these trade routes so it's on one hand i hadn't heard specifically about people from england but it's like oh yeah people from greece and the middle east and the baltics and like are all converging on this area so that that tracks that they're like i don't like what's going on in england I will go to Greece and see what'll happen there. And they're like, sure, you can you can have Crimea. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I kind of like this picture of Constantinople as like the medieval New York, where it's like, it's the yeah. big city. So we're just going to go to the big city, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere between 230 and 350 ships. That's a lot of people. It's like a big yeah. mass migration. But oh, yeah. It, it does kind of feel like we're adventurers. We're going to like, it's like here is yeah. whatever it, it, the Hagia Sophia, which is the equivalent of Ellis Island. And we're going to see it on the horizon yeah. as we come in with our boats. And it's, oh, very nice. Very nice. Very nice. Exactly. It's very much like if we can make it there, we'll make exactly. it anywhere. It's exactly. up to you. Exactly. I, I do appreciate more and more seeing scholarship that acknowledges, right? Like, no, people weren't just sitting in place and like settling down and that's it like they there was quite a bit of migration and movement throughout this period and like 
you know, this idea that there are these clashing groups as well, right? Like where sometimes they're getting along mm. quite well and then other times they're not. Like I assume that when they're talking about the heathens in Crimea, they're talking about the Tatars, yeah. which yeah. are like another group that's had had mixed relationships with the people in the Kievan Rus, like depending on basically what, what day of the week it yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, absolutely. And I, I know just Crimea at this period is, is super multi-ethnic. Right, that there's Italians oh, yeah. there. The Genoese are the the major traders in the area, and and there are still Greek speakers, and there are Slavs, and there are yep. Tatars or other Turkic tribes, and yep. um, it's quite complicated. One of the things that this makes me think of mm-hmm. is I know from my weird linguistic history that one of these like offshoot kind of linguistic curios in, in European linguistic history is that there's a Crimean Gothic language. Did you know about this? Uh, it's ringing a bell, but yeah, re re-enlighten me. It, it's a weird story because so now we think that the Goths, the same people who invaded Rome and set up states in Spain and and, um, yeah. and in the Italian Peninsula, that the last place where their language was spoken was by a group that had migrated to Crimea, and that their language might have even stuck around into the 18th century. Uh, the best attestation we have of this language comes from a Dutch traveler who ends up in Crimea in the 17th century, mid 17th century at some point, And he writes a list of words that sound yeah. like Dutch words that people locally are using. Oh. And we, we yeah. have a little tiny bit of inscription evidence that has come out in the last decade as well. But it's interesting to me. I mean, I guess my other question that I wanted to write is what do you make of the sources that we have brief notes in two English, like Anglo-Norman or Anglo-Saxon histories. But then our primary sources are an English monk who's living in France write something and an Icelandic saga. I I find it so interesting that these Northern European Germanic speakers in England and Iceland and Scandinavia, that they are kind of working in the same cultural sphere. Now Crimean Gothic, do we think there maybe is there's a connection with these Anglo-Saxons who settled there? Like, is this some sort of Germanic language that's formed by an amalgamation of different Germanic languages that's spoken in the same area? I don't know. It's this terribly, terribly attested language. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, I mean, I, I think it makes sense because, again, like, I, I think we, we underestimate how connected people were mm-hmm. even across different places, right? Especially as literacy increases right not among like the common folk by any means it's typically in a monastic setting right if you're writing things people are sending letters back and forth we have correspondence they also will mail like books back and forth to each other or like send i mean not mail it's not you know the pony express yet or whatever but you know someone can be loaned a book from one, one monastic library to another so it makes sense that they're hearing about these things, writing them down, and and kind of having the, these connections because they probably could have been in contact with one another. And I do think it makes sense that it's mostly just sort of written down as an aside because I feel like, right, if you have this migration of disgraced lords, effectively, who mm-hmm. couldn't reconquer their territory... It, it is on on one hand surprising it's not more prominent in other sources, but it also does sort of make sense to me that it's kind of a a footnote in in a grander source, right? Like yeah. in in a bigger tale, I guess. And uh, what I find partially interesting about that is that we don't have a Byzantine source for this. 
Yeah. That, you know, they, they talk a lot about people coming from the North and, and working as Rangians, yeah. but they don't have like, well, this time it was English people who came here and then we asked them to reconquer this territory over here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and this is a really well-documented period in Byzantine history. So yeah, I, I, I don't think it necessarily means that this thing didn't happen, but I'm surprised that, or maybe I'm not, maybe, maybe then it's like, okay, well, yeah, but they, they didn't see this ethnic identity as particularly clear cut or they they aren't that interested in this one detail they're kind of thinking about it from their own perspective and it doesn't really matter where these people are coming from yeah I, I do wonder how how inclined they would have been for example to differentiate between different you know saying like well they're english and these people are i don't know norse or whatever mm-hmm. right they're like they're varangians now yeah. like that's you're all the same the same yeah. group now the great byzantine melting pot Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well. All right. That's really cool. Thanks for taking the time to talk about this. Thanks for having a break time with me. Yeah. Thank you for sending me this article. It's, it's super, super cool. Hey. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those like yeah. weird little historical curios that I don't think either of us had ever heard about before. No, and I do wonder if you know someday there'll be like an archaeological find that's like, look, this is definitely like. Anglo-Saxon style brooch or sword yeah. or something, and we're like, ah, oh, look at this—a connection. Yeah, an archaeological find of an inscription, a road sign. Welcome to London, yes. population eighty-five. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks for taking a break. Thanks everybody in the audience for taking a break with us. I hope you're having a great work day. And we'll see you next time. Bye. This Baba Yaga break time was brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. Follow us at Baba Yaga Project on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok.